medical student and a biomedical engineering student talk about what their institutions are doing to address COVID. And is there a silver lining to this? Well, all this and more on today's episode of Talks with Toe. Today on the podcast, we have our special guest, Zach Liu, who is a medical student here at UC Irvine Medical Center. You might remember him from a previous podcast. Unfortunately, we did have to take that one down, but we got to discuss today, catch up, and just see how quarantine life is treating us. We talk about the things that we're grateful for and the things that we've learned through this entire pandemic. Hope this is helpful and beneficial and also just a little bright spot in your day. Cool. I mean, I don't really have like any topics and anything, but we'll just jump into it and then we'll sounds good. Talk about whatever. I mean, we could talk about COVID, obviously. Yeah. When was the last? When was the last time you did a podcast? Uh, I mean, it's probably been a couple of months now because yeah, I basically kind of shelved any plans once things started rolling and like mm-hmm. it was getting clear that things were going to get shut down. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I've been planning on doing a couple podcasts with some other people in the biomedical engineering department. Okay, but, over yeah. like the the Zoom platform and stuff like that. Well, no, though they were the in person ones, and then once things like started closing down, and then there was that one email where like, all right, we're all off campus. That just like <laughs> yeah came out of nowhere. Um, then we'll, gotcha. just, oh, we'll just show this for a later time, and I just haven't had time to reschedule those. Yeah, but, have you um have you had a chance to like integrate your work? more online based or you still be basically able to do stuff online? Yeah, luckily my research is mostly computational um, as <laughs> is. And at, like before this, I had actually just set up a remote server like on in our lab space that I could remote into. So luckily I did Oh, cool. That. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. It's so, good that uh, you're able to do that and not have to, uh, I don't know, have too much to change and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty tough for some of the other individuals who have mm-hmm. to work with, you know, cells or live specimens, you know, because that really puts a like a massive delay in their research. Um, and if you had exper- experiments that were running, you know, prior to that, they're basically just shot experiments. And you can't keep those things alive. So, yeah, yeah, I think they were able to <clears throat> there are some like, I'm sure, research projects that are like they considered more essential and not essential. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, there are still a few people on campus that are doing like the more like time sensitive stuff. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There's probably a, a greater majority of people that, that had to like just completely press pause on their stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, I know one of my friends is considered one of those long-term projects that he got um, exempt for. So he's going on campus still, but everyone else in his lab was not. Mm, so, okay. um, yeah, so he's like the only one in his lab that's there. Uh, but a lot of the BME department is definitely shifted to COVID-related projects. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of work in how do we sterilize N95s, um, you know, improve PAPRs, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of research going on that's um, pretty cool, actually, and I think will definitely help. Um, a lot of it's going to UCI Medical Center, obviously, first as kind of mm-hmm. like the, the main testing zone. Um, they so just started, uh, did they just start using the N95 respirator re, uh, repurposers? Because I, I saw an email regarding something like that. I mean, a lot of them are experimental, so probably. Um, I mean, they're trying to get them out as fast <laughs> as possible, you know, but there's just gotcha. not 
and a lot of existing, um, you know, experimentation on how to even re-sterilize those materials, you know, mm-hmm. cause people just never had, had to think about that before. Like, yeah. Uh, in the medical field, you know, pretty much everything you use in clinical setting, you just immediately discard, you know, for sanitation purposes. So like now that um, they're looking at these things, it's like, oh, well, we've never even tried to sterilize some of these things before. So we have no idea what the materials will will do under, you know, sterilization conditions. Um, so it's pretty interesting. I think it'll be cool to see what does work. Um, and a lot of things are being tried. but yeah, I, I I think that luckily in California, at least, we were definitely not hit nearly as hard as um, New York, obviously, but yeah. that gave us a little <laughs> bit of leeway to um, get things out to where they needed to be. Um, yeah, I don't know how it's going with the med school right now. How are things going <laughs> with uh, you guys? <laughs> well, it, like, like I think with everyone else, it just ended up being something where it just took everyone by surprise. And so um, luckily for, for kind of like the second years, we had already been in the process of transitioning to um, our, our dedicated board studying time. So basically we already have like about a month to about a month and a half of allocated time uh, at the end of our second year to just have no classes, no clinical duties and study for um, what's called the USMLE step one. It's, um, it's the first out of three exams that you take to get your, your medical license. Um, and this one's particularly important because um, you're given like a three-digit score. And that score is basically like the SAT or the MCAT. It basically um, determines your competitiveness for certain specialties, um, mm. certain regions. Like if you wanted to, to practice, you know, on either side of the coasts, basically, um, those tend to be a little more competitive in terms of um, uh, what score you need to get in order to do those residencies there. And so, um, so it kind of, I guess worked out in a way for the second years in terms of not interrupting our schedule as much, but obviously in hindsight, um, our schedule ended up getting uh, interrupted anyways, because um, (laughs) every single week it seemed like the uh, extension of the stay at home orders was extended by another two weeks. Um, And this was starting all the way back in March. And so I guess no one could have anticipated this whole thing going as long as it did, but it, but it has. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people actually had to, completely reschedule their tests to be taken later in the year, like towards December or even next year. Um, oh, wow. Which is a little bit of a bummer because you've been spending so much um, yeah. time already um, studying for it to be taken within the next couple of weeks. And so um, a couple of my classmates and I were fortunate enough to, um, uh, as far as we know, be able to test um, next week. But um, a lot of people have had their appointments canceled and moved around and rescheduled. And so... It's kind of a, a toss up in the air. Yeah. And uh, most everyone else has moved on to like online distance learning, like like what they're doing in the undergraduate campus. So all the first years are learning online. Um, they're learning their clinical skills online, which is definitely hmm. um, something newer <laughs> that um, is a little, uh, it's definitely something that, you know, obviously it's difficult to replace that kind of in-person aspect of being able to have like, for example, a standardized patient where you can practice your skills on, but yeah, um, they're definitely making do. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that has kind of been talked about in the medical field for a while, anyways. Because I know a lot of biomedical engineering departments have been looking into like how do you incorporate like a VR augmented reality um, clinical 
supplement to the existing clinical training. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, right now, it's, like, obviously that clinical training is, like, super important because, like, you're there with the patient and that type of thing. But the difficult thing for hospitals is just, like, scheduling all of that, um, you know, like, with the number of residents that and, like, medical students that are already trying to get into these, like, clinical settings like there's sometimes just isn't like you know the capacity or the space to have everyone jammed in a room like that yeah so like they've been trying to make systems that kind of give the same experience but you know the quality is just not the same as being in person still Mm -hmm. and like i mean i think the hope is eventually it'll allow more people to get the necessary skills to become doctors because of like the shortage that we have in medical personnel in general Mm-hmm. But we're still kind of a far ways off from that, I think. Yeah, I actually um, participated in a study where they used the augmented reality um, a couple of months ago. Uh, it was super interesting, for sure. I think it was like a we had an example of like a scenario that involved like an infant, and so they were able mm-hmm. to. It was augmented reality, so they were able to like superimpose the an infant onto like a, a physical like in person exam table, um, and it was definitely like super interesting, but. Um, it was like a simulation and the kid wasn't feeling well, but obviously like there's limitations on like what the baby could do. I mean, obviously the baby didn't look well and, and was breathing like um, too fast and was using too much energy to breathe. Um, but obviously like the baby can't like, you know, respond to like you touching it and stuff like that. Cause it's not there. Yeah. And you can't like use your stethoscope and actually listen. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely like a kind of interesting experience that I think, um, they're continuing to kind of refine and see how, uh, I guess, what what place does something like augmented reality have in medical education? It was fun. I mean, it was just <laughs> cool just having uh, like a heads up display and being able to like, you know, integrate that virtual component. So that was really cool. Yeah, who knows? Oh, in 10 years, we'll, we'll probably look back and be like, oh, wow. <laughs> <Thank Yeah. you. laughs> Pretty insane. Because, I mean, also just like the, the barriers to entry to getting started with those technologies is definitely dropping in cost too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even a lot of the undergraduate biomedical engineering design projects are, they're able to like set up very basic systems for VR and AR as is, you know, you can just go buy like an Oculus for like, you know, cheap one for 300, 400 bucks. And then yeah, you have all the open source stuff online and you can kind of cobble together a somewhat functioning, you know, system. So yeah, there's a lot of potential there, but definitely I think implementing that in a medical education is setting is still going to be somewhat of a problem. And, you know, a lot of hospitals also don't necessarily have that as a super high priority because there's a lot of yeah, important yeah. things to yeah. figure out. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, albeit like if this whole thing resolves eventually, um, hopefully um, a lot of, hospitals are, are moving towards integrating the medical students into the clinical training parts a lot earlier. Um, just cause I think medical education at large, I think we talked about it uh, a little while ago was that, um, like a lot of the training has kind of moved online and we're seeing that kind of moved at a hundredfold now specifically because you can only do things online. So, yeah. um, it's just been a really interesting, uh, kind of a situation to see how, uh, education at large is trying to kind of transition into distance learning. Um, independent learning, things like that. And uh, you're right, obviously it works for some things better than others. Yeah, I think that's, it can be beneficial, you know. Um, but obviously I think 
we've been doing online classes and that's very difficult for an engineering senior design project where you're kind of expected to like physically make something. Mm, um, yeah. You know, a lot of the, a lot of projects have just been completely shelved because like people don't just have laser cutters and like 3d printers in their house, like 3d yeah. printers maybe nowadays, but you don't have a nice 3d printer to like prototype, like mm-hmm. make the things you need to make. So, um, and when you're trying to manufacture things like, that's very difficult to do in a virtual team environment. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see, um, yeah, how companies, even medical device companies are going to respond to this because <laughs> it, it'll be a lot of challenges. Like I know a lot of the biotech companies in Irvine, like they're also going like major reduction in production lines and stuff like that. So I'm not sure how that's yeah. going to affect, you know, medical devices and supply and stuff, but. Oh, I think like right now, the things that are in demand are, are going to continue being in demand. Like obviously uh, like masks and uh, the reagents for like the, the testing kits and things like that. And then basically everything else I think has, t- has taken a back burner. So like, you know, other, other, other reagent kits and, and um, like, basically stuff that you've been using for experiments and stuff like that. I think mm-hmm. definitely uh, falling behind a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Have you been keeping up with uh, just how things are proceeding with, you know, virus COVID stuff updates, um, any of that? Yeah. It's kind of hard, I guess. I, I mean, I guess everyone's doing it, but I mean, you stay, I've never been like more in tune with the news uh, now than I've, than ever so um i think everyone's kind of been inundated with information about what's going on what's the government's response what's the what's the virus doing um, how's it affecting our lives um, how's it affecting other people's lives and businesses and stuff mm-hmm. like that so yeah the the it's been pretty pervasive in terms of how impactful this this virus has been on basically everyone's life so um i guess specifically from a uh, medical standpoint, um, what's been interesting is to see, uh, I guess, the healthcare response uh, to to how um, how prepared we were for an outbreak like this, um, and definitely like a lot of uh, learning opportunities. So, um, <clears throat> obviously, I think uh, it, it goes without saying that, that our country has been like pretty impacted by this virus more than what was originally thought maybe two three months ago. And so, with that, I think there was. Um, Kind of this this realization that our, I don't think our system was ever prepared for something like this, um, and contingency plans and 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 preparedness, uh, mm-hmm. it just we weren't ready for it. So um, everything, all a lot of like the medical decisions were reactive in terms of um, needing to get like ventilators for people who would go into acute respiratory distress in order to mechanically ventilate them because they can't do it themselves. To um, how are we able to approach it from a public health standpoint? Of, for example, you know, in Orange County, I think they implemented the the stay-at-home order uh, uh, last month around around mid-March, and um, and that resulted from just this realization that we weren't prepared for something like this. So I think that the reactive um, kind of <clears throat> uh, measure that was taken was to just keep everyone at home, uh, stop non-essential businesses, and and try to kind of contain the spread of that virus. So there's a fair amount of like clinical medical science and then public health that's kind of intermixing. And, and I, I think definitely have taken uh, uh, 
kind of like a very high stance in 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 everyone in everyone's life. Uh, uh, I guess you know, the general population at large probably doesn't know exactly what the term epidemiology means, for example. And now, you know, it, you know, it's common place to see graphs and of of epidemiological measures, things that um, mm-hmm. uh, I guess the general public. Uh, weren't aware of or things that were measured that suddenly become um, uh, kind of the forefront of the national attention that people have placed towards uh, seeing how fast the virus is spreading, if the measures that we're, that we're undertaking are, are effective, things like that. So yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a lot. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, it's, it's just also interesting because like we still don't know like really that much about the virus. Like, there's a lot of like theories about why New York was so much more heavily impacted than the rest of the country. And like, but no one really has like a definitive answer on that. Um, yeah. And it's, it seems very inconsistent on like how, um, yeah, for like California was hit pretty hard in, I think like the Bay area, um, mm-hmm. like Santa Clara County, I think had a lot of pretty high cases and high case fatality rate, but um, Southern California, is a bit muted compared to that and it's a little bit odd because there's just as many people you know um and it's kind of weird because like i don't know if like there's definitely like we know for sure that like you know age is a great factor on like susceptibility Mm -hmm. i think most of the studies like definitely agree on that and then um but like a lot of the scientific information is like pretty conflicting on what symptoms are even and like you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of studies that are like, oh, well, like, we're pretty sure that, uh, you know, contagion happens before symptoms, like mm-hmm. transmission happens before symptoms appear. Yeah. So that's a huge difference from when we started. <laughs> also. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and like how contagion happens, like, is it through, yeah, like, is it just airborne? Is it just floating around in the air? Is it by respiratory droplets? Yeah. Um, all those kinds of questions, you know definitely still even today have a certain element of uncertainty yeah i don't know what you're hearing from uci medical but i know like at long beach medical they were going back and forth between airborne and droplet precaution for a solid like two or three weeks mm-hmm. um, yeah i think they have i think they i think we're generally uh erring on the side of uh like respiratory uh uh precautions not necessarily airborne um <clears throat> and that and i think all these and i think the decision um, at large, at least in Orange County, of, of 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 how we're approaching the virus has been mostly based off the preliminary studies about people actually studying the virus itself and seeing how it propagates. But mm-hmm. again, nothing is ever definitive, and so I think that people are still not one hundred percent sure how it's spreading. Um, but it was interesting to, uh, like, for example, I think in Orange County um, they've implemented like a pretty universal masking policy not just in the hospitals, but like at large, that's, that was definitely yeah. something that uh, wasn't talked about at all, basically until, uh, until the, the, it became more apparent that the virus is propagating a lot faster uh, and more broadly than we thought. Um, and that, that was, that was actually a pretty interesting part just to see that kind of evolve because originally uh, I think that a lot of the public health experts were like, you don't need to necessarily mask up. Um, They're primarily concerned that I, I think the uh, the supply chain of masks um, purchased by consumers would have affected the supply chain um, of the hospitals. Yeah, which it did. For Although a I day. think, yeah, it did. Yeah, there was a little there's there's a little bit of intermixing there. Um, so I think that the original kind of recommendation 
of not using masks, for example, was, was based off, A, they wanted to reserve it for the uh, people who are frontline in the healthcare settings, and B, just because it still wasn't fully understood um, exactly how the virus uh, was propagating. So um, that was definitely something really interesting to see these past couple of weeks, how that has evolved. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there are pretty promising results, I guess, um, about treatments. So there are a lot of things in the FDA pipeline. We'll see which ones actually make it out. Um, yeah, I think I, uh, I looked at clinicaltrials.gov and there was like maybe four or five studies, um, maybe at the earlier last month, and now there are like hundreds. And so mm-hmm. now there's a ton of stuff coming out. Yeah, I think the some of those early studies are uh, making it through the later stages now, which mm-hmm. is pretty incredible for the FDA because clinical trials usually take like two to five years. In, in most yeah, cases, yeah, like, it's it's definitely ramped up. Um, yeah, the vi- the the um, vaccine. I think there are, there are like quite a few iterations of the vaccine, but um, so those are still in phase one. So those might take a while to actually hit the hit the market at large. You know, people estimate that, that you probably won't see them actually being used on a population standpoint until next year. Yeah, probably not until middle like um, next year, earliest. Yeah, but the uh, rendesivir, which is one of the examples of the antivirals, that I think they're crunching the data right now. But apparently, it's looking it's it's looking promising, and so. And those were phase three. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see how they kind of use, they will use that, uh, that drug in, the, in this fight against the virus. Yeah, I think Dr. Fauci actually made like first positive, official positive comments on Remzivir like yesterday. So that's a very mm-hmm. recent, you know. Um, but if it's coming from, um, you know, NIH, that's a pretty good sign um, that they're yeah, yeah. at least hopeful that... Um, I mean, I guess the big thing about this is that it doesn't cure the virus. It just reduces viral load from what I've read, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's still huge because uh, you could probably see more of this. But, like, I, I think, you know, if you reduce viral load, that also gives your immune system time to, like, catch up and hopefully prevent people from getting to that stage where they need a ventilator, right? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, one of the, it's an antiviral that I think specifically works to, to reduce the viral load and um, yeah, you, you, I think you nailed, uh, nailed it. It's, uh, it slows down the spread of the virus inside your body so that your immune system is able to kind of, uh, uh eventually get sensitized to the virus in the first place. Um, which is probably one of the, why the reasons why, uh, people get so sick is because uh, the virus is unique in a sense that, um, your, your body doesn't necessarily have the recognition, didn't necessarily recognize it as foreign until later in the process that's been allowed to propagate. And so, mm-hmm just slowing that process down um, probably allows your immune system um, extra time to uh, recognize it as a foreign, um, something foreign inside your body and then subsequently mount a response. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hopeful. I think, um, I think uh, it was really developed for Ebola, uh, which is uh, another type of RNA virus um, like coronaviruses, um, except it was, it was used. I think the main purpose of it was uh, all the way back during the Ebola outbreak. Um, where they were trying to control it there. And it didn't quite work for Ebola. Um, so it was kind of surprising and interesting to see how uh, they kind of just dug this this kind of archived drug that didn't work for one virus and uh, applied it to, to this virus. And it seems like um, yeah. it's been having a positive effect. Yeah, I mean, the viruses are 
they're in a, they're their whole entire own field of study. You know, you have virology, mm-hmm. um, but they're very, very interesting because like they're highly protein dependent in some cases, um, but their entire like goal is genetic propagation. So like, you know, hijacking your cells to make their DNA and RNA. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it kind of like, makes sense that some medicines might work for some viruses, but also like some of the viruses are very different from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like coronavirus is like a family of viruses on its own. Um, but you know, influenza is like a completely different virus and like, Mm -hmm. um, the common cold is also a completely different virus. So it'll be interesting to see like what happens because some of these could potentially be used in other viral cases and we just might not know because like there's too many possible like iterations of trying these different things on different viruses um and in the end like i think our immune systems typically if they can do it work better than drugs (laughs) so (laughs) yeah i mean the the drugs most of the drugs out there that that are uh, antimicrobial tend to be more like slow the spread versus then versus uh, completely stop it it's it's usually the immune system that does the the eventual cleaning up of the, of the house and stuff pretty remarkable how how um how redundant and how uh complex our immune system for sure that's insane i mean even like for cancer which is like more of what i study like some of some of the new methods are basically like gene therapy using viruses as a tool to trigger your own immune system to like clean up the cancer cells itself. Yeah. I mean, um, because I think a, a good amount of the cancers, uh, one of the, like the hallmarks of uh, cancer cell and correct me if I'm wrong is it's uh, ability to evade the, Im- the detection by the immune system. And so how, how, how exactly, I don't know, in a, in a nutshell, how, how do you feel like um, that viruses have been used specifically to help your immune system detect those bad cells? Yeah, I think um, from my understanding is uh what the a lot of the target gene therapies like their primary mode of getting um so i guess what gene therapy is like you're editing a specific gene within your cells um to allow for your immune system to take out the cancer cells Mm -hmm. so you have a couple like hurdles in that first like you need a way to make sure that whatever gene you're editing edits only the cancer cells so there's Usually, um, cancer cells express certain surface proteins that kind of make it a hallmark cancer cell. Um, so you can kind of target those as like receptors, but to actually get the DNA into a cell, like the best tool we actually know that does that is a virus. Mm -hmm. That's what viruses do is they, they attach to a cell and they inject you know, their DNA into the cell. And that's like what a virus does. So um, some of the targeted gene therapies is they use a specific virus um, that is, you know, been specifically genetically engineered for this. So it doesn't actually harm you, but they implant that gene. It integrates with, it only targets the cancer genes, hopefully that's the goal. And then those genes uh, either, there's a couple of ways you could do it. You could either have a gene be a gene that programs cell death automatically or you have a gene that um you know makes those cells exhibit another surface protein which can be targeted by a drug 
Um, so like, or your own immune system, right? So like, because these genes are very, or these cancer cells are really good at hiding, if you can get the cancer cells to express things that your immune system recognizes foreign, then your immune system will automatically go for it. Um, so you don't yeah. even need drugs, hopefully. And mm -hmm. um, it's very, very complicated, obviously, but it's kind of elegant in a way. It's like, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's remarkable, but it's, it's, it's a lot of different pieces, you know, like different pieces of nature that you have to make work correctly. Um, so there have been, uh, I mean, like it only works during cancers again too. Cause like, you know, your, your, your cancer, depending on where it's in its body, it's like also has a different cell morphology and stuff like that. But that's kind of the general principle about how gene therapy works. Um, most of them are actually transmitted through viral vectors. Um, there, there might be other ways um, that I'm not aware of. Um, but yeah, like the virus is still like the most effective way that we kind of know to directly inject, you know, genetic material into a cell. Yeah. At least in, at least in, from a clinical standpoint, I, that's, that stuff is super forefront because I think we're still, I think we're still, um, Kind of seeing the after effects of the invent of um, like biologics, so a lot of the um, kind of the chimeric uh, antibodies or antibody therapy, and and that that has blown up in the past, you know, you know, the past five to ten years, and so it's just really cool to see how fast like you know biomedical technology advances, especially in this mm -hmm. day and age, where where a lot of the the advances have come as a result of advances not necessarily in understanding clinical science better. But being able to process information faster, um, I think, is one of the one of the hallmarks of how fast um, technology has has definitely progressed. And so, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully, all that can be translated into into outbreaks like such as what we're seeing right now, and and for cancer therapy. Um, and I don't know. I'm sure they're finding new ways of applying it to ways we haven't even thought of before. Yeah, I think the I think the interesting thing about being in the medical field is that you get a lot of um, solutions that come from other fields right mm -hmm. um like nowadays when you go into a clinical setting like it's pretty common to find some sort of laser-based device um but lasers were originally developed as a department of defense project hmm. um, like what were they what were they originally used for or do you know? I, I i don't know exactly i think part of it is probably like um either communications like satellite communications uh -huh. or weaponry um, mm -hmm. um so but you know nowadays like there's a lot of medical procedures that are laser-based medical procedures um you have you know yeah. lasik and that type of stuff um so it just took someone like hey let's use a laser on someone <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> interesting yeah. yeah and then also um mris like that's an entire another thing like that's all physics basically mm -hmm. like it's electromagnetism massive magnets and someone who was a physicist must have had a friend or someone who was working in the medical field. And they're like, Hey, what if we like put a person in this and they're able to get images back of a, the insides of a person using these magnets, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, very beautiful. Like very like detailed images too. Yeah. Like that, that technology in itself is actually insane because it, it mm -hmm. I, I took a class on it like a couple of years ago and it involves a lot of quantum physics, like not just like regular <laughs> physics, like quantum physics. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I, I had to dabble and uh, it's not for me. 
yeah, I mean, it, it it's a very like mathematically complex how, what they do, yeah. but it's it's pretty crazy. So, I I think like um, in terms of just of all the times like this type of thing could happen, I think we're sure there's a lot of uncertainty, right? But like we're in a pretty good position, I think technologically speaking to be able to combat this. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think that there's a lot of reasons to be positive. Yeah. Um, I guess have from your standpoint, what have you seen like in the, the culture that uh, culture at large that you feel has been kind of impacted by all of what we're seeing now? Mm. I think if anything, it's, it's kind of revealed where people put their value. Mm -hmm. Um, if that makes sense. Um, I think from my perspective, like, like, obviously I, I think this is like a very like serious issue that needs to be addressed medically. But at the end of the day, like, I don't feel anxious about things. Um, and I think part of that is just where I put, you know, my value. It's not necessarily my work. Um, you know, even though that's important and it's not necessarily, um, my ability to go out and about. Um, but I think what I've noticed is that, you know, people definitely react differently under stress. And typically when that happens, it reveals where people's, um, you know, most important, where they put the most important value of their life on. And it kind of reveals in our culture that we, we definitely have a very, huge idolization of work mm-hmm. i think to a degree that is probably unhealthy um and i i kind of experienced that also because if you travel abroad like um people's perspective on work is very different than the american perspective on work um how uh, so uh i think we definitely are more work obsessed <laughs> um <laughs> even even if you go to like you know other western countries like in europe like the perspective on work is like, yeah, work is still important, but it's not this all-consuming thing that it typically is in the United States. Mm. Um, and I think that's just been very interesting to see that, like, you know, it's easy to not think about that because you're always working. And now that people have all this time, like, um, and people are also losing jobs, unfortunately, like, there is a kind of a reassessment of, like, what is the most important thing in life? And I think that's yeah. interesting to see. Um, it is kind of saddening to see how some people react to it. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, obviously, I don't know if you've experienced this, but going to grocery store is <laughs> a very interesting experience now. And I think it's very clear to see that people get frustrated very easily in those situations mm-hmm. and are a bit more selfish than they might think they are, and myself included. Like, I'm speaking from experience too. Like, um, those like little things that like pop out, right? Oh, maybe there is like a deeper issue there that needs to be addressed. Yeah. 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 I think I've definitely noticed, um, how this whole pandemic has like exposed (laughs) a lot of like underlying cultural motifs that have, um, have definitely been compounded by all this going on. You're right. Like I was at a, I, I, seen multiple situations of, of customers blowing up, blowing up at a, at a associates for reasons that are just like, hey, 
it doesn't seem like normal to have to get upset about those things. But I think definitely what you're talking about, about um, kind of just the culture of busyness in, in our country is, is definitely something that has had to take another look at itself right now because um, uh, they're kind of, I, I, I've been reading a couple, I am, I've heard of a couple of books that have talked about the idea of like the hustle, right? That you got to like get bread, make money, have fun. <laughs> kind of dealio. And that seems to be like the epitome of, of, of a lot of people's, uh, where they find worth and success and happiness is being able to work hard and subsequently, um, enjoy themselves because they've worked so hard. Um, and, and while like, I think that, um, it's healthy to a standpoint of having a motivation to, to always improve on yourself and, and look for ways to, to, um, kind of expand your knowledge and things like that. At the same time, you're right. I think it's been kind of detrimental in a sense that, you know, if all, if everything was taken away in the sense that your job was taken away or, or your, not necessarily your job, but like your daily routine and, 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 and your career advancement was suddenly halted. Um, it definitely like, uh, definitely puts quite a strain on like your, your mental well-being. I, I've seen it, you know, personally in, in the, in the medicine community, a sense of like, uh, like, for us as medical students, we were, a lot of us were actually sidelined because of all this. Um, uh, because, you know, the personal protective equipment, the PPE had to be reserved for people who were actually working with sick patients. And so a lot of us medical students were sidelined. And so I definitely found myself in a position where, um, you know, having to examine, oh, where all my motivation lies and uh, where I develop intrinsic worth. And, and I think, uh, compounded with the fact that I'm studying for a test that's supposed to uh, essentially um, give you a numerical score to determine your worth for specific specialties and stuff like that. Um, it's had to make me think a little bit inside about, you know, what I determined to be uh, in, important values to myself and, and uh, characterizing what, um, how I view myself, what makes me worth, period. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of, Oh, those things are coming up right now. It's kind of interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, my hope is that like people come out of this, hopefully a little bit more grateful, um, mm -hmm. just about like the little things in life. And, um, we are lucky to live in a place that has the resources that it does. And I think, um, like I'm not always great at acknowledging that, um, and I think as a society at large, we do have a tendency to complain about things sometimes. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh, we got to complain about this and we got to complain about this because it's not perfect. And it's like, there's a lot of things that aren't perfect, you know, but it's also not as terrible as it used to be. So like, I think we can do a lot of good if we um, kind of have that perspective of like, um, yeah, this might suck right now. There might be things that are obviously not working within, you know, our society or our government. And uh, I think it's good to like work towards those things and like, you know, addressing those issues. But I think it's also important to realize that like, that's kind of how human society has always been, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, there, yeah. there's always going to be imperfections. And like, um, you know, I think, having kind of a realistic standpoint on that is also kind of healthy to balance out the, the, uh, the excessive need to try to make things perfect. Um, 
it's good to strive for that, but there is a certain point where that becomes a little bit like too, like too much of a focus where you kind of miss out on like the, the good things in life. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. How you been doing with this uh, stay at home order? Are you bored? Do you want to get back out? Like what's up? I mean, <laughs> I still have work to do, so I'm blessed about that. <clears throat> it's definitely, you know, more difficult to do work. <laughs> uh, distractions are, it's not like they're easier to find. It's more that it's, it's easier to get in that state of mind where you allow yourself to find those distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, you know, nowadays you're connected to the internet pretty much wherever you go in the U S at least. So like, that distraction was always available, but now there's, there's less like, um, there's less of that, like, uh, I guess social pressure to like keep yourself from being distracted because everyone's being distracted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think people are like, um, I don't know. I, I've never been like the person who uh, communicates like digitally like this, but I think, um people are like reaching out more it's it's a, it's a good positive because i think people um are uh being more intentional at reaching out to, to to each other and friends and family and things like that but again that that's compounded by the fact that now you're indoors all day and and you have yeah. the internet and you have reddit and instagram and all that stuff yeah i still i still try to walk outside um that's good every, every day if i can um and i think a lot of people have actually been doing that from what i've seen but people are being pretty yeah. smart about it like everyone will you know go wait out out of the way if you're like coming towards each other on the street like most people just like walk into the street because there's no cars so like, you can just walk into <laughs> yeah. the street it's been it's been uh, surreal there's a my running path which is a uh, it's a beautiful uh, kind of like a uh, walking biking and a one-way like a uh, one-way road uh, along newport back there are you familiar with that yeah yeah so that place though that place is completely shut down to cars now so it's been like almost liberating to be able to have full like distance of or full width of the road to 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 do your recreational activity. But uh, yeah, sometimes I worry that I'm getting too used to walking in the middle of the road. When cars uh, when cars uh, return, it's been so clear lately these past few days. That's also been something that's uh, quite like uh, eye opening. Is what have been what an impact like this motor vehicle use has on, on the air. I've been able to see Los Angeles from like from here and you're yeah. not able to do that because of the, the smog and stuff. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a, you know, a silver lining positive to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Kind of reduce the crazy carbon output that we, <laughs> I mean, it's not going <laughs> to last forever, but you know, it's, I know, I know it's, it's yeah. a small positive. Got to take it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They had to, did you hear they had to like, uh, the the gas industry or whatever they had to start paying people to take gas yeah. off their hands because that's just insane yeah how, how oil this futures is, uh, went negative for the first time in history it's just insane that that's like a thing um that this that all this has has led to yeah yeah i think i think at large people are um you know obviously not to negate the fact that i think there's like a significant uh, amount of people who are suffering right now um because they don't have access to, um, like I've been so blessed to be able to get just food from across the street from the grocery store. But mm-hmm. you know, some people 
you know, don't have money to do that or, or they are, are in like not so good situations and things like that. So, um, but hopefully um, for a good amount of the population, I think this, this time has been uh, kind of eye-opening, like you said, um, being able to recognize what's important to, to individuals and, and hopefully come out to it a little more mindful person. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, we, we as people like are kind of responsible for reaching out to each other. And it's been very nice. Like you said, like being able to catch up with people I haven't seen in a while. Um, and just kind of made me realize like, Oh, like it's really not that hard to do nowadays. It's more just like a convenience thing that, um, you know, I'm inconvenienced or something or like, I don't want to inconvenience other people. Yeah, I understand, yeah. But at the end of the day, like, everyone, like, we kind of need, like, human interaction as people. You know, some people mm -hmm. might be more introverted. Like, I personally am more introverted, but, like, at the end of the day, I still need, like, some human interaction. Like, it doesn't, otherwise, you just go completely nuts. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, <laughs> this whole social distancing, uh, at the beginning, it was, it was a, kind of, like, a pretty strict um, kind of blanket thing, like, just stay away from people. Um, but very soon, I think people started realizing it, you know, social distancing, like more like physical distancing, but like, uh, almost like social, not distancing in a sense that you, 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 you would probably reach out more often than you normally do to people or just interact, um, digitally. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see, see that, how that kind of played out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. I think, uh. I know you got to get going soon, so I don't want to hold you yeah, too man, long. Yeah, man, appreciate it. Yeah. This was fun. Like, yeah, definitely uh, hope you're staying healthy, obviously. Yeah, you too, man. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we'll have to do this again at some point in the future. And Yeah, hopefully in person one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hopefully, uh, you know, you'll, you're able to take a test. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's been something, man, because I think, I, I think we're, us medical students are specifically allowed to take it. I think a couple of other, because we take it at Prometric, which is like one of those broad testing facilities that mm -hmm. also administers like the GRE and other standardized tests. But um, fortunately, I think for us, I think they've considered our exam essential because it's literally like a career stepping stone that you have to get done before you can move on to your next step. So right, yeah. I don't think, I don't think they want to completely do away with the generation of physicians <laughs> yeah, that would be... if, if they can prevent it. I would throw a wrench in the already wrench-filled medical system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yep. Nice. Here's Cross. All right. Sweet. Be sure to like and subscribe to Talks with Toe on Spotify and also give us that five-star rating on iTunes. Also, be sure to go over to YouTube and subscribe to Talks with Toe. Talks with Toe is written and produced by Chris Toe.